The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Brexit and the controversies around the Northern Ireland Protocol and issues around Scottish independence and the future of the United Kingdom have all put the spotlight recently on the possibility for a border poll on a united Ireland. A number of complex political issues need to be resolved before we get to that point, but this debate has prompted some leading academics in the Republic to conduct research on the potential economic costs of a united Ireland. On Tuesday, Trinity College Dublin economist John Fitzgerald told the Oireachtas Committee that reunification would cause a financial shock in the Republic and trigger a drop in living standards south of the border due to the large annual budget deficits in the North. A report due out next month from Professor John Doyle of Dublin City University looks in-depth at the potential costs of reunification. Everything from the existing multi-billion pound annual transfers from Westminster to the North to the potential benefits that might accrue in terms of increased foreign direct investment and enhanced levels of tourism if there was a United Ireland. Now, I'm delighted to say that Professor John Doyle joins me on the line now, along with Ombork Kennedy of the Irish Times, who himself has been writing on this issue recently. Umber Kennedy, you were listening into an Oireachtas committee hearing yesterday and this whole issue around the cost of reunification and John Fitzgerald, Trinity College Dublin economist and an Irish Times columnist, formerly of the ESRI, his word to the committee, if you like, was that reunification would cause a major financial shock to the Republic of Ireland if it were to go ahead, um, given the current financial backdrop and so forth. Just explain that to us a little bit more. Yeah, I suppose it's just to set a bit of context. I mean, this this question of uh, an All Ireland has kind of come into focus uh, since Brexit a little bit more so, and uh, obviously since the possibility of Scottish independence has has come into focus, and so there's been a renewed focus on North Side issues, and at the centre of all this is the possibility of uh, reunification and economic reunification, and at the centre of that equation is the level of subvention that Northern Ireland receives each year from the UK exchequer. So what I'm talking about is basically Northern Ireland's budget deficit, uh, the difference between what it raises in taxes and what it spends. And the difference is around about 9 or 10 billion sterling each year, which must be transferred from London to Belfast. So uh, the question is how much of that would transfer over to an all-island entity in the event of uh, Irish reunification. Now, John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morgan have done some studies in this area. They think it would uh, a, a, a reasonable amount of it would, trans- over, it would transfer over to a new entity, and that would cause something of a financial shock um, in the Republic. So essentially, we uh, the whatever political entity would take over would have to come up with some portion of that nine to ten billion to uh, help with the administration of Northern Ireland. And so uh, the subvention level has often been used and been spoken of as a kind of block or a barrier to the future reunification of the island. Very different characteristics own in the North compared to the Republic, isn't there? Because the public service, the public sector as a whole plays a very large part of the northern economy. And just wondering, how do social welfare rates and pay rates compare in the north to the Republic? Yeah, well, I mean, that's even not even included in the subvention argument. The social welfare rates are much lower in the north and they're much higher in the south. So if um, 
an All-Ireland entity was to arise, some sort of accommodation to that uh, difference would have to be made. And of course, that would uh, probably cause another uh, expenditure uh, lift on the exchequer of whatever new identity rose. So there is big differences between the two economies. There's big difference in productivity. There's big difference in uh, poverty rates. There's big difference in income levels. There's big difference across the board in a load of different metrics. So uh, subvention is just one element of this. But um, the notion of uh, a unified all-Ireland economy, you know, is a very complex uh, concept to try and deal with. And there's really nobody that could uh, maybe, you know, look at it on a cost-benefit analysis without seeing the political entity that might arise in the event that such an avenue was chosen. John Doyle, you've been doing some work on this and you're preparing a report, which I think is going to be published next month, looking at the issues around the cost of reunification and some of the differences that exist, I guess, north and south. Um, From your work, how much of that £9 billion or so subvention do you think would carry over, would likely carry over uh, in the event of an all-Ireland economy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really challenging piece of work. I've been at it part-time now for a couple of months, and it's challenging for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the figures that the UK Office of National Statistics publishes are not published for the benefit of a discussion of United Ireland. They're an accounting exercise for the UK state to apportion out costs across the different regions, uh, 12 different regions, uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, and then uh, nine parts of England. And so they don't give the breakdown we would need to answer this question precisely. Um, some figures are quite precise, and you can talk about the politics of that relatively straightforwardly. Um, for example, the defence budget that's allocated from London to Northern Ireland, their basically per capita contribution to UK defence, is £1.1 billion sterling uh, in the last published financial year. Uh, to put that in context, the entire defence budget of the Irish Defence Forces is has made, reached €1 billion Euros for the first time in history this year. Um, so politically, while obviously a new uh, United State uh, on the island of Ireland could decide to have whatever be- defence budget it likes, I don't think I'm engaging in too much crystal ball gazing to say we're not going to go from 1 billion euros to you know, 2.9 billion euros or something like that. So I think, you know, because a lot of that is driven by the costs of the Trident nuclear weapons programme, the much bigger uh, scale of, of the British military, even in terms of pro rata, there will be some increase as so... And my article, I've said, you know, it would be safe to allow maybe 150, 200 million of an increase in the defence budget. Our defence budget is not large by international standards anyway. Um, but certainly of the subvention, you know, something around 900 million, that would be effectively irrelevant to United Ireland. Politically, it's so unlikely as to really being capable of being a fairly definitive decision that it would not happen. Sure. So a few figures that are very clear, but then some other figures really are in the realms of where politics and economics intersects. And the two single biggest figures uh, within the subvention are the cost of pensions uh, to people in Northern Ireland. Uh, that's almost three and a half billion alone. Um, notwithstanding, as Owen said, those pensions are lower uh, than Irish pensions, but it still comes to uh, a sizable amount. And about two and a half billion on debt interest and debt repayments. Um, and I suppose the, the reason those are, you know, the figures are relatively clear. Um, but the question is, what would happen after United Ireland? Uh, legally, for example, the debt belongs to the UK. The banks that borrowed, that lent that money, lent it to the UK. They expect the UK to repay it. 
But in the negotiations that would follow if a referendum was passed north and south on creating an Ireland, inevitably the British and Irish governments would end up discussing that figure. Uh, would the UK keep it on? Would Ireland make a contribution to it? And it's not too much of an imagination stretch to suggest that pensions and debt would be discussed pretty much at the same time. Um, like Ireland, there's no separate UK pension fund. We don't put away the money in a, you know, same as you would for a private pension in a, in a locked account. We pay out of current expenditure every year. So there's no legally separate fund to cover that three and a half billion the morning after United Ireland. Nonetheless, in both countries, we have a strong expectation that we have contributed to a pension. Um, people have a sense of a pension entitlement uh, that, that has built up and they have paid taxes and contributions towards that over their lives or they've had caring responsibilities where people have taken sure. uh, caring breaks. So I think it's not unreasonable to say that the UK would accept some responsibility for that pension entitlement. They did in the context of Brexit. Um, and that might be the sort of trade-offs you get between debt and pensions. And I think it's reasonable to say that the UK, you know, this is not a Catalonia-style referendum. This will be a referendum taking place under British law in accordance with the Good Friday Agreement. And there's no reason to believe the UK would treat those discussions in a belligerent manner. They look after their interests, for sure. But I think those two big figures representing effectively half the subvention are certainly in the realms of what would be negotiated at that time. And if the UK walked away from pensions and, and left the Irish state with that entire cost on day one, then it's hardly likely we'd voluntarily agree to pay some of Britain's legal debt. Um, so in some ways, there's no way you can get caught for both. The discussion has to, at worst, leave us um, in a situation not contributing to debt. But I think in looking at what the British have done previously, it would be a bit better than that in reality. John, how integrated are the two economies, North and South, at present? I mean, we know, for example, there's, there's an all-Ireland uh, electricity market, isn't there? And we have... Uh, there are agreements in place uh, for healthcare provision, uh, north and south. And we know, of course, that um, there are people in the agricultural um, side of things. They have farms on both sides of the border. So there's a bit of a bit of integration there. But how much deeper than that does it go? Uh, not very. Um, so, say, compared to, I mean, all borders, even inside the European Union before Brexit, create differences because there's issues around reporting your profits and taxes. So there's always a disruption when there's a border between you know two towns, two regions. Um, but if you look at the level of trade across the Irish land border compared to the you know typical borders between Belgium and the Netherlands, Netherlands and Germany, Germany and France, uh, the, the Irish border is more disruptive to trade um, than those borders. I think that's you know for political reasons, the legacy of the conflict. Companies haven't been used to dealing with each other. You can understand, you know, unionist-owned companies might feel they don't have the connections or, or the political capital in the South to do business there. So they tend to look further afield. Both countries, both jurisdictions do. And so one of the challenges of, you know, economists find it very difficult to agree on what caused A or B in the past. Predicting the future is, is almost impossible. But it stands to reason there would be a positive economic uh, benefit from removing the sort of political and legal barriers to doing trade across the border. Uh, and that is, a, as I said, at quite a low level at the moment. How do pay rates and social welfare rates, John, how do they compare north and south? Benefits have always been um, much better in the south, I mean, really for, for a long time now. Um, so if you're looking at a, a pension rate of about 130 sterling uh, in the north, you know, compared to what, about 240 euros, um, you know, unemployment, uh, those sort of benefits are typically about half what they are in the south of Ireland. Um, and so there's an issue there in terms, I mean, the big issue for Northern Ireland is 
uh, the challenge of the 20% of the population at present are on benefits. Um, so official unemployment rates are reported to have been very low and they don't really tell you anything meaningful about the economy. Um, but the percentage of people who are living on one form of benefit or another is really an indication of the very weak state of the private sector in Northern Ireland. And that's the real challenge uh, in the run-up and, and beyond a vote uh, on the question of Irish unity is why Northern Ireland was, at the time of partition, the wealthiest part of the country, Belfast the biggest city and, and the most industrialised. There's no inherent reason why Northern Ireland is an economic um, weak zone, the poorest in the UK decade after decade. It would only have to reach average Irish levels, not to be the wealthiest part, simply average Irish levels, when actually we'd be turning a surplus every year and the whole question of a deficit and subvention would be irrelevant. And, and so but the real underlying question is, what needs to happen in the region that is now Northern Ireland for it to reach at least the average level of economic performance of the South? In terms of taxes, a lot of people in the South might be wondering what it's going to mean for their own taxes. If, there, if there's a cost to reunification, whether it's you know a couple of billion or it's, or it's nine billion, we have to meet that nine billion hole ourselves in, in full. Um, that's surely going to have to mean higher taxes or, or lower spending. I mean, there's no other way around it, is there? Um, no, and those are very complex um, calculations to make, which is why the project um, that I've published this research as part of, uh, out of the Royal Irish Academy, an all-Ireland body ca- called Aaron's. Um, you know, before Brexit, we didn't think there was going to be a referendum on United Ireland for a very long time into the future. There was no real urgency or incentive to be doing this sort of research. Uh, and all of a sudden, since 2016, this is actually something, first of all, that we've no control over. The British government can call this referendum in some ways, whenever they wish, uh, they have a you know they're required to call it when there seems to be a majority support in the north, but they have the discretion to call it. And under the Good Friday Agreement, we're obliged to call a referendum if they call one. So suddenly, there's an urgency because the, all the polls are now suggesting in the low forties support for United Ireland and Northern Ireland at the really beginnings of this debate. Um, so we really do need to do some serious work to calculate t- the sort of figures that would be required, um, you know, what sort of economic growth um, is possible in Northern Ireland with a change in policy in the economy in Northern Ireland without being delusional about what that might be. And then what would be the remaining benef- benefits to be covered? Um, how long might that go on for? Would the European Union, the UK or the USA help with any of that or would we be on our own? Um, so calculating the economic benefits that might come and the, the remaining subvention that would have to be covered certainly on a transitional basis um, is not easy. And this article really just takes the first chunk of that. It's what would be all else being equal. And I know in economics it never is. Uh, but taking that first step, what would be the subvention that would definitely remain to be covered uh, in the first step? And I think that's some, probably somewhere between two and three billion um, would be you know, absolutely left to be covered uh, in a new entity. And that would probably mean we'd need to increase our tax uh, intake across the island of Ireland by about four or five percent. Um, that doesn't mean every individual would require to do that. We certainly wouldn't be looking for the low paid. Um, and, and there would be impacts by changing the tax system in the north, where, um, you know, for example, their foreign direct investment into Northern Ireland is at disastrously low levels. Um, talk known uh, previously, I mean, I think the IDA reported about 9,500 new jobs in the Republic of Ireland last year. Um, the equivalent figure over five years in Northern Ireland is about 8,000. Know, so really poor levels of inward investment, low levels um, of high-paid jobs, and therefore not paying uh, much tax in terms of contributions. 
there's no inherent reason why that's the case. You know, there's no inherent reason why FDI is so poor. I think political instability is part of that. Um, and likewise, tourism is the, is the other big ticket issue. I think we reported about, I think, seven and a half billion of earnings um, from tourism in the last full year before COVID uh, hit us. The equivalent figure for Northern Ireland is about one billion. You know, so drastically, even allowing for, you know, it's about 40% of the size of the Republic of Ireland. Um and so there are figures there which need to be investigated further, which would suggest it's not simply a calculation of work out a subvention and divide it by the number of people in the South to figure out what we have to pay. It is a question of trying to do the more complex mathematics around trade, economics and public finance. Um, but this article, I think, is the first step on that. So I suppose that one of the points I wanted to get across in, in my article, I think, you know, the subvention, the North subvention has been a kind of highly politicized concept in the North. And it really is just a fiscal deficit that it runs each year. And, you know, I, I, I made use of the ONS uh, statistics by noting that Northern Ireland was just one of nine UK regions that had a fiscal deficit in 2019. So the Northwest, which includes Cumbria and the Greater Manchester area, had a, the biggest one of 20 billion. Uh, the West Midlands had one of 15 billion. Wales and Scotland had, had ones of 13 and a half billion each. So what, what we're looking at just is is kind of regional diversity and regional disparity in in the economics of a country so um you know it's it's it, in many ways the north subvention is, is a kind of little bit of a red herring in a debate it really reflects you know the the lower levels of productivity that uh, the north actually has at the moment and it's it's been conflated in many people's eyes with uh and all ireland uh the economic reunification which it's not really you know so uh, as John was saying, it, it, it basically refers back to a lot of the kind of backward looking in indicators that the North currently uh, has. Sure. Owen, I mean, obviously, uh, there's a lot more to this than just pounds, shillings and pence, if you like. Um, and there are political issues in, in the background and, you know, issues around identity and all of that. But if we just set those aside for a moment, in financial terms, wh you know, where is the incentive for people in Northern Ireland to vote for uh, an all-Ireland economy because house prices in the north, you know, generally speaking, are lower than they are down south. Um, there's uh, there, there's obviously the subvention coming from the UK, which is a bit of a comfort blanket uh, for them. So take that away and, you know, it's a, bit, a little bit scary perhaps for, for some people. Um, and we know as well that, uh, okay, productivity might be lower and foreign direct investment uh, might be lower as well. But the standard of living in the north is, is quite good overall. Well, that's another big uh, debatable point. I mean, uh, there's been a number of economists making contributions to the standard of living. One in particular uh, made the assumption that the standard of living in the North was about 20% higher um, than in the South, which um, a lot of people raised eyebrows about. And obviously he was using a metric there, consumption. And consumption obviously is, is private consumption and public consumption. And obviously the state up there spends a lot more and so on that one metric, the North does um, maybe punch at least equal with the South or a little bit ahead. But of course, consumption doesn't include other things like saving. And when you have an older population, the consumption is, is higher. On sort of uh, disposable household income controlled for prices, the South comes out wealthier. But there's no real standard definition of living standards in the economic literature. So it's a very difficult concept to pin down there's a myriad of things that go into it, even things like uh, life expectancy, which is higher down the south than it is in the north. So um, there's, you know, it's a real debatable zone as to which um, 
economy has, you know, uh, I, I suppose on, on most of the conventional metrics, the South seems to have a much higher standard of, uh, of living. But as you say, in terms of health, for example, in terms of house prices, it seems like it might you might be better off in the North. So uh, this is just one of the kind of debatable points. John Doyle, I was just wondering whether there's a template that we might be able to use um, where this has happened before. I'm thinking maybe, you know, the, the reunification of Germany. Are there lessons to be learned um, from that or is that just a, an extreme uh, example that really has no relevance um, towards a united Ireland? Or are there other examples around the world where two political entities, for want of a better phrase, um, have been joined together and there's some lessons can be learned in economic terms? In modern history, there's been more divisions uh, than coming together in terms of uh, what happens. So, I mean, probably the biggest lesson learned are in terms of around division of, of debt and assets, um, where generally days have been negotiated on, on a net liability as well, and just a population grids, which would advantage uh, the south of Ireland, those negotiations. Um, but it's not, Germany is really the standout example of two cases. And for all the weaknesses of the Northern Ireland economy, um, and they are significant, uh, it's not East Germany. You know, um, in the scale of what West Germany has been asked to take over in 1991, in fact, wanted to take over in 1991, um, was immense. Uh, though, interestingly, uh, a colleague in Galway, and I'll already drew my attention um, on the back of some opinion polls recently about people's willingness to pay extra tax. Uh, the Germans also, in the last opinion poll, just before unification happened, showed a very low willingness to pay extra tax, um, even though it was a hugely popular decision when it happened only months later. So those are sort of awkward questions to ask people. Nobody thinks they personally should pay more tax. People always think somebody wealthier than them in society should pay the necessary tax to pay for anything, whether it's health or housing. So Germany offers some lessons in process, uh, but the scale is very different. Um, you know, agree with Owen, there are many measures uh, of how you compare uh, standards of living, but I would still say using almost every OECD or EU measure of comparing land living standards, Northern Ireland is now the poorest region of the UK and substantially poorer than the Republic of Ireland. I don't think that's going to make any difference to voters who vote currently for the DUP or Ulster Unionist Party. I mean, I think it honestly wouldn't matter very much if we could all agree on which exact statistic was the right one to use. That's not the basis on which they're Ulster Unionists. But Ulster Unionists are no longer a majority in Northern Ireland. I mean, they represent somewhere between 41 and 43% of the population, You know, less than 400,000 voters, um, the emergence of a very substantial middle ground alliance, Green Party, representing now a bit over 20% of the population, uh, means there is a group of people who are not going to vote for United Ireland on the basis of, you know, cultural four green fields type of arguments. It is going to be this sort of discussion, which is crucial. Uh, they're not locked into thinking membership of the United Kingdom is the only way forward. And that, for me, is the biggest single change since Brexit. The middle ground and to a lesser extent SDLP voters shifting from being more or less content with the status quo into the medium term. And if they had positions in United Ireland, most SDLP voters would have done. It was a long term sort of desire for that to happen. And post Brexit, you're seeing really very little to choose between SDLP and Sinn Féin voters in terms of they both of them want a border poll within five years and 95% of them would vote for United Ireland. Um, and for the middle ground voters who would have been pragmatic, uh, basically in favour of the United Kingdom, even if there were small EU unionists, 
we now have polls suggesting between a quarter and a third, even up to 38%, would definitely vote for United Ireland. And about 40% don't know. Um, and for 40% of a significant political bloc not to know where they stand on such a major constitutional issue just shows how quickly it's changed and how people don't have the answers to these sort of questions around healthcare, standards of living, the economy. Um, and some is are desperately seeking those answers now. John, I don't know if your report goes into this, but I mean, what are the potential benefits of an all-Ireland economy in terms of, you mentioned uh, tourism, for example, and, and foreign direct investment. Presumably, if we put the two of them together and we package them uh, as, as we've done in, in the Republic uh, successfully in the past, we can, you know, the, the sum of the parts can be much greater than what we have at the minute. I mean, that's certainly, I think, one of the um, things, I think, in putting the, whatever remaining subvention there will be in the context. The article I'm, I'm writing is going to finish off with that sort of uh, analysis. It would require public policy change in Northern Ireland, for sure. I mean, one of the key figures is if you look at, um, in addition to 20% of the population uh, currently effectively being out of the economy, even in terms of young people today, in terms of skills and, and, and education levels, uh, almost 25% of 16 to 19-year-olds are out of education, are out of training in Northern Ireland. They're not involved in any apprenticeship, higher education, further education. The relevant figure in the South is about 5%. Um, so even in terms of one of the reasons for indirect investment has found that, you know, Northern Ireland not a very attractive place, it's often the low level of skill uh, and higher education uh, capacity for them to recruit locally. On an all-Ireland basis, you could imagine uh, those sort of policies you know, changing fairly quickly. The impact would take a little longer, but uh, I think there would be no pushback against a better organised uh, education. I think there would certainly... In the aftermath of United Ireland, uh, I don't think any American company is going to invest in Northern Ireland just because they like us and they're happy about a United Ireland. But it might get you in the door. You know, that feel-good feeling might get you into the table. Then it's up to the IDA to do their thing. Um, but it might open doors for a brief period where people feel, well, at least I want to look at what we might do here. Is this now a more stable place, a place that looks a bit more like the South in terms of its long-term uh, political trajectories? Uh, tourism, again, might be an easy win in some of those areas. So there are, I think, some clear areas where, from the point of view um, of people in the Republic of Ireland, benefits that would be of an all-island, not just us doing the right thing by the north, but I mean, anyone who lives in Dublin now can see the level of congestion, you know, pre-COVID in terms of transport, house prices, uh, there's a limit to how much of the economy can sit in and around the Dublin region. And by international standards, Dublin is already highly congested. It's an imbalanced part of the Ireland economy. And we've struggled to do decentralisation properly in Ireland. We've struggled to build a critical mass in Cork or Limerick or Galway to sort of rival the attraction Dublin seems to have for the big tech companies, the new media companies and, and others. Belfast, because of its history, because of the different politics, you know, might provide that counterbalance um, for the first time and actually be a positive for the island of Ireland, not just moving jobs from, from Dublin to Belfast, but bringing in new companies who are put off by the congestion in Dublin. And likewise, tourism. I mean, Dublin, Galway City, the Cliffs of Moher. I mean, you can't grow those tourist targets anymore. I mean, midsummer, they're just, you know, there are no more tourists you can fit into those destinations, realistically. And the impact in terms of Airbnb on the housing market in Dublin is just, just one thing that people have talked about a lot. Spreading that tourism and growing it across the island of Ireland would be beneficial to 
citizens in the Republic of Ireland at the moment as well. And so those are the issues that sort of brings pluses and minuses. And it's a question of, of doing the necessary research now. So long before we ask people to vote on this issue, they won't know the future. We can't tell them that. But we can give you at least a range of things that they need to think about and that might be possible in the aftermath of in Ireland. And I think what Owen captured well earlier is 10 billion of a subvention is almost irrelevant to that debate. That's not what people need to be thinking about. It looks like it's a simple figure. Um, but when you dig into it and, and pair it away, it's actually not really the right debate at all. Owen, oh, final word to you. Uh, I suppose John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morganroth have been uh, uh, sort of signals there would be a decline in living standards, most likely anyway, in the Republic in the event of a united Ireland. Um, they've talked about a, a financial shock here. Um, and as John has said, it would most likely uh, lead to increased taxes somewhere along the way. When you package all that up and present it to voters uh, down south, um, not a very attractive proposition, really, is it, from an economic point of view? Well, that's that's been uh, the assumption that a lot of people down here have, have laboured under, that that the North subvention would have to be taken on by an all-island administration and it would be a burden that, as John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morganroth said yesterday, it would require a big hike in taxes or a big cut in expenditure and that would have a knock-on effect on living standards. But... Um, you know, John's uh, research shows that, um, you know, the, the, we're not really too sure exactly what would pass over and it's it's very debatable just what level of subvention uh, any new entity would have to um, provide. And of course, that's just one side of the equation. As John has just said, you know, we can't possibly see all the benefits that might accrue to uh, working combined north and south. And I think John's point about, you know, Dublin being maybe reaching a kind of zenith in terms of suggestion is, is a really, uh, in terms of uh, congestion, sorry, is a really interesting point, you know. Um, and the North being so um, you backward in terms of productivity and falling further. One, one of the interesting about John's uh, research and indeed uh, some of the other research done on the North is that since the 1998 uh, Belfast Agreement, Northern Ireland productivity and stand, living standards have fallen further behind the rest of the UK, uh, when most people thought there was going to be some sort of economic dividend that would run in parallel with peace up there. So that's a really worrying metric for the Northern Ireland economy. And it, you know, poses interesting sort of um, issues and interesting potential benefits of uh, running the two economies uh, more in parallel. Umberg Kennedy and John Doyle, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining Inside Business. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Professor John Doyle of DCU and Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe. With increasing pressures, Ireland's CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment, and importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com ie CEO.